Hello everyone and welcome to The Regular, a Words and Nerds spin-off podcast with your host Nathan J. Phillips. I'm a writer of speculative fiction, sometimes an editor, and always a fan of any book with a good story. I'm coming to you today from Nunganwool land. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging of the Nunganwool people, the original storytellers of this region. Today, I get the pleasure of speaking to author Philip Gwynn. Philip's debut novel, Deadly Anna, was a huge success. It won a plethora of awards, including the Children's Book Council of Australia's Book of the Year Award for Older Readers, the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Young Adult Fiction, and the Children's Peace Literature Award as well. Philip has subsequently written over 30 books, ranging from picture books to adult crime thrillers, and has been translated into many different languages. He's the recipient of a host of awards, including an AFI award for the film adaptation of Deadly Anna into the movie Australian Rules. Philip has released a number of picture books in the last couple of years, including Small Town, illustrated by Tony Flowers, which explores refugee settlement in rural Australia. Today, we're here to discuss The Break, released in September 2021, and exploring, among other things, capital punishment and the coming of age in a uh, somewhat brutal way. But without giving anything away, and uh, without any further ado, welcome to the podcast, Philip. Uh, Thanks for having me. No worries. And um, we're talking a little bit before about making sure I got uh, pronunciations right. I just want to double check. It is Gwyn, is that right? Gwyn, that's right. It's Welsh. It's Welsh for... Apparently, it means white or done. Oh, there you go. Excellent. And before I get uh, two sidetracks chasing down etymologies of names and all that sort of thing, which is a fascinating topic in and of itself, um, we're obviously here to chat about uh, The Break, latest novel that came out, came out in September. Uh, I read it earlier uh, this week, and it's um, it's kind of hard to describe without giving uh, too much away. So I don't want to do any spoilers, but it's definitely worth the read. And it's one of those ones where... For me, just when you think it's getting to the end, suddenly something else happens and there's just more stuff and more parts of the web that's got to be unwoven, which is probably a terrible way to put it. So before we go into that, did, did you want to give us a pitch, a quick evo pitch? What, what is the break about? What is it uh, to you? And I'll hand over. Yeah, it really is hard to talk about it and not give the plot away. But I've sort of given, I give a little bit of it away. Um, so it's set in Indonesia, um, initially in Bali, and it's the main character. It's a 15-year-old boy. His name is Taj. He's Australian, but he's lived his whole, pretty much his whole life in Bali. So he's an expat kid, expatriate kid. Uh, he lives in a huge villa. He's got maids. He's got a driver. He gets to surf on some of the world's best waves. Uh, He's, he has a pretty privileged lifestyle uh, due to his mother's fashion empire. His mother's got a, a fashion business that shops all around the world. Um, he's got a beautiful girlfriend, Inga, who's an Instagram model and influencer. Um, so an amazing life, except his dad's in jail. So his dad got busted smuggling drugs 10 years ago, smuggling drugs trying, attempting to smuggle drugs into Indonesia and he got caught and he's uh, got the death sentence but um, there's been a moratorium on the death sentence for 10 years um, and then they have the changing government in, in Indonesia and this by the way I, I, I took from real life, this is pretty much exactly what happened in Indonesia um, 
changing government, new president, and, and everybody thinks he's going to be different because he's not from the elites, the first president not from the elites. He did grow up on a you know, sort of shanty. Next I, to I the was wondering if that was based on the... Um... On uh, was it uh, Wakoto? Yeah, uh, grew up in the fishing village. Yeah, Jokowi. Yeah, Jokowi. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Jokowi Dodo, but everybody calls yeah. him Jokowi. Yeah. 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 Um, and so there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of hope that this father is going to be um, have his death sentence commuted, but exactly the opposite starts happens, and he actually gets a date for his execution. So my character, Taj, he's really never never done anything his whole life because everything's been done for him. Mm. Um, makes a decision that the only way to save his father's life is to bust him out of jail. Uh, and that's the premise. Yep. And then things go a little uh, little pear-shaped. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's, it's one of those ones where I, I think, because I was trying to work out the right words, and it is sort of a coming-of-age one, but it's a very much a very brutal version of a coming of age uh for Taj there and um but there is a lot of different cultures in there like it's for me it almost seemed like it made um made a point of saying it's it's not just when it looks at Indonesia it's not just Bali and Jakarta it looks at pretty much the whole region it looks at different islands it looks at that West Timor and East Timorese um uh was a good relationship as well all those, those impressions uh, and as you mentioned, there's Inga, who's got the whole Instagram. That's a completely different culture in of itself. Her life is pretty much online. Um, is that something that was important to you to convey, getting all those different settings and all those different cultures to interact? Or is that just part of the, the natural melting pot that is uh, some of those Southeast Asian nations that, that attract a lot of um, international guests and long stays? Mm, um, Indonesia was the first country I ever visited. I grew up in country South Australia. Oh, same. <laughs> the age of, um, how old was I? 19 or 20? Bought a ticket to Bali. Uh, <laughs> nice. From Perth, $286. I hitchhiked across the Nullarbor. Nice. Uh, flew to Bali. And I, I, even though it was more than 40 years ago, I still remember so distinctly that feeling when you walk off the plane in Bali, in Denpasar, and it's that. That, that feeling, that exotic smells and the heat and the feelings, and then you hop in a in a in a in a in a, in a taxi and and just the sights, you know, it couldn't be more different to the the, the South Australia of my childhood, which is yeah. sort of dry and dreary, really. Even though I mean, I love it. I love the landscape of South Australia. Bali no, yeah. couldn't be more different. So it just left such an impression on me. Um, and then I then I lived there. I lived. I, I mean, I, I kept going back lost count of the times I've been to Indonesia and not just Bali I, I traveled all through Indonesia from from Bali uh, uh, towards Sumba and all those islands and the other way as well all the way up to Sumatra and then I lived in Bali from 2011 to 2016 um, and so when I came to write about it um, I, I just didn't want to write about Bali I, I just wanted to you know attempt to capture the extraordinary complexity of Indonesia because it's an extraordinary country. It really yeah. is. Yeah, I had a similar sort of thing. So I'm getting a bit of feedback there. I'll see if I can shift my mic. There we go. Um, but a similar thing, like I said, I grew up in country South Australia as well in Flinders Ranges and then the Barossa Valley. And uh, my, my first overseas trip was to Germany, which if you know anything about the Barossa Valley, it's pretty much just, uh, you know, really not that much different. So... 
my um <laughs> my first trip to southeast asia i think we went we went through singapore and then I, I spent a couple of months in malaysia as well and it really is for something that's so close to australia from an international perspective it really is um i don't know if it's quite a shock how different it is but it's it's distinctly different not just a different landscape it's yeah but anyway um i'm probably just lamenting on uh you know overseas travel and remembering all the overseas travel at the moment because it hasn't happened for a little while <laughs> um yeah. yeah well it's not happening i actually bought a ticket to bali oh nice <laughs> in march fingers crossed fingers crossed hopefully that can yeah. all uh, come it through. was ridiculously cheap so i hope it, hope, hope yeah. yeah i hope we're allowed to travel yeah, probably cheaper than going back to South Australia at the moment. That's uh, yeah. that's looking quite expensive. Um, but you, you've sort of started your career with a fairly challenging topic as well. So if, if Indonesia and, you know, um, drug smuggling and death penalty wasn't a, a challenging topic, you also started with deadly, sorry, I want to make sure I pronounce this right because we just double-checked it, deadly Anna. Um, yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, I've been pronouncing it deadly Una for way too many years. Um, but deadly Anna which was really challenging that sort of culture clashes between Indigenous Australians and those of us who uh, have heritage from elsewhere. I've got to ask, what made you jump into such a challenging topic as, as your very your first sort of published novel? That's a, that's a big task or a big one to challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, uh, it's a really obvious answer because that was the material that was available to me yeah. because I grew, up, I grew up in York Peninsula. Oh, okay. Yeah, I yeah. grew up in Port Victoria. I grew up with yeah. Indigenous kids. And so when I came to write, uh, like a lot of first novels, I just um, reached for that stuff that was easy of, most available to, to me, and that was my childhood. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, was, I hadn't realised it, you know, growing up, that it would be such a rich load of material, but it absolutely was. Yeah, uh, and... You know, one was at the 99 uh, children. I've got the, the notes here, the Children's Peace Literature Award. And then it went on to become, you know, a movie that won the uh, Aussie Rules, that won the AFI Award. And, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. One, yeah, um, one Children's Book of the Year Award as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, it won lots of awards. Um, I guess because before that, and people um, had tried to write about Indigenous stuff and they just hadn't got it right, I don't think. Um, you know, not to say that I got it right. Deadly Anna has a lot of critics, for sure. But, I mean, I think because I wrote it about my own experiences, um, I still think it's a pretty authentic book. I think it's a... I picked it up and started reading it the other day and I, and I hadn't even looked at it for years. And I, and I, and I read the first few pages and I thought, yeah, yeah, it's, it's authentic, this, this book. It's all, you, you, you believe, you believe this, this character. You believe the narrator. You know, when he starts talking about his coach, you see the arcs instead of arcs. You think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm up for this journey. I'm up for wherever he's going to take me. Yeah. And how does that go? I've got to ask a bit of a sidetrack here, but um, when you do, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this from a very early amateurish style of, of writing where I look at my work and go, well, that's horrible. That's never going to be anything. Um, you've obviously had a lot more success than that. What's it like going back to a book that you wrote all those years ago and I mean, I guess does it come does it come across differently to you now than when it was how it was intended when you wrote it? Yeah, look, I think most writers would say they hate rereading their own work. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, imposter know, syndrome's a thing. Yeah. You always, you'll always pick up stuff you want, yeah. you want to change. I mean, I've written a lot of picture books, and often I'll read them out when I mm. visit schools, and um, I invariably change this. There's at least one word I change <laughs> when I read them out because it just sounds better. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a picture book. It's only a couple of hundred words, so for a whole novel, I'm sure there's. Um, whole swathes of it you'd, you'd like to change see you know basically you don't do it it's, yeah yeah I mean, you know it's not going to serve you yeah. <laughs> it's not going to serve anybody any good so i only just picked it up because i hadn't read it, seen it for a long time i didn't read the whole thing so um i mean i have i did it turn it into a film mm. um and that was a pretty challenging process because you know you're sort of pulling it apart and then putting it back together, but in a com completely different way. Um, so I've only ever done that with one, with Bedliana. And I, I, I mean, I, you know, I'd love for somebody to take the break on as a film or perhaps a TV series, but I, I don't think I'd want to be interested in, um, in writing it. Um, I just yeah. feel like that process is, is, is it's really um, painful, actually. It's a really painful thing to do. Even though I really like the film Australian Rules, which came from Deadly Anna, yeah. it was a really painful experience writing the, the screenplay. Yeah, and I do have to mention this is a little bit of a self indulgence here, but um, the uh, the lead actor of that one was, of course, the one Nathan Phillips. Um, obviously, yeah. a different one to myself. But would you believe that in only having only done you know half a dozen or so interviews, this is actually the second time they've had a connection. Um, with him, with uh, one of our other guests, actually taught him how to do or in screenwriting subjects at uni, and was asking, "Oh, did it, do I know you from somewhere?" Um, so, in uh, just half a dozen interviews, somehow he keeps coming up. I've never had any other interaction with him whatsoever. Um, oh right, but yeah, I, I visited. He went to um, <laughs> when are you going to school in Sundance, just outside mm -hmm. of Melbourne. So I've actually been to his old school. I think nice. he might have come. We've, we both might have gone there years ago. But yeah, he's a, he's a he's a well, he's a Hollywood actor now. That was yeah. his first film, but it, he's launched his career and he's gone on to have a solid career. Yeah, yeah. It was it uh, Wolf Creek, uh, Snakes on a Plane? He's, he's been on a few. Um, yes, yeah, Snakes on a Plane. I'm not sure. <laughs> not sure that's the biggest one. I'm not sure, I'm not sure how high up that is in on his resume, but he was definitely yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry. Thank you for that uh, little bit of a self indulgence there. Um, but look, I think you've, you've probably answered this one a little bit already, but I was going to ask how involved you were with the the uh, the, the adaptation to a movie. And, you know, you, I guess I'm, I'm not sure how to word this question correctly, but I have heard that in, in the US there's a lot of authors that go over there and the first thing they're told is, we love your book, you're a genius, we're going to make, you know, this is going to be is massive. And that's apparently how Hollywood execs say hello. Um, and whatever happens from there is, you know, you never hear from them again or it goes on to be something. What was the experience like from, from an Australian filmmakers um, or you're dealing with Australian? Like, is, is there a different sort of experience there entirely or how did that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. sort of a cottage industry here really compared to what, you know, happens in the States. So it was a very gentle process here. Um, the director who who option the film Paul Goldman mm -hmm. um, you know he was very very patient with me because I was another screenwriter I didn't really know what I was doing I, le I learned on the job but um, 
Uh, I mean, it, it was good in that he a he loves AFL. Uh, it's always helpful in that kind of movie. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he understands the game very well, and he and he also you know was really intrigued and interested in the material. So yeah, it was a great process, and we became very good friends um, through collaborating on the script. But you know, I get you know it's a collaboration that that that. that that you'll find, even though I'd only written a couple of novels until then, um, the collaboration can be um, confronting for a novelist. Because, you know, as a novelist, you're, not, you're just not used to it. You're in a room by yourself and then you slave away and then you submit your manuscript and you'll get assigned an editor then. But to have people, you know, giving you feedback on, on your first draft and... Uh, so it can be really confronting. And, you know, I learned, I developed a thick skin because of that, actually. Um, and I've still got a thick skin. So I'm sort of able now to take anything that an editor or, <laughs> or a script editor throws at me. And I just, uh, and then, you know, you, they, as you always say, you just got to think, what's, what's good for the script here? It's not about your ego. It's not about his ego or her ego. It's actually what's good for the script. That's what you're going to think about. Is the script yeah. going to benefit from this? And if the answer is yes, then you just got to park your ego and yeah, do the work. Yeah, sounds like a pretty good way to take it, especially like where we talk often in uh, writing about killing your darlings. It's probably a, sounds like it's a similar sort of thing where it's it's not what do I want to write, it's what is going to serve the story, what is going to make this yeah, a better experience. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, what's what's going to serve the story? And you know, it's a it's on a screen. So really, you've only got a couple of things to work with. You've got dialogue and you've got action. You don't have the tools you have as a novelist. Yeah. You just don't have them. You've got a very limited repertoire as a screenwriter. Yeah. A little bit harder to get inside the character's head. And, yeah. Well, you can't. You can't. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. well, you can. You can do voiceover, but you know, that's a really hard thing to do well. Um, now, something else that you touched on a little bit before was uh, when you were living in Bali. And uh, this is something I've got to ask the question because you're living in Bali. Was it um, so 2006 to 2011? Was it? Um, no, uh, 2011. Uh, how did the yep? I had the wrong side of the uh, the ten there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but you you're living there, um, and that was you know again looking at um, you know drug smuggling into Indonesia and looking at people who are holed up in, in jail for a long time awaiting executions and the like. Yeah, um, yeah. That, was, that was a obviously a time when we had um, some Australians in prison over there with the Bali Nine. Uh, I'm wondering how that influenced or how that experience that is, it's not just on a TV screen like it is for a lot of us uh, over this, you know, when we were living here. How did that experience or did that experience, I suppose, um, shape parts of the novel and, and how, you, how you wrote that? Yeah, I mean, that's, I wouldn't have written the novel if, that, yeah. if they hadn't been in jail. So I, I, I visited them. I'd been in jail. and Okay. I, yeah, um, voluntarily. Um, you, you didn't pull a Taj and try and break them out or anything, did you? No, no, no. no. <laughs> Might not be sitting here talking to you. Yeah, you, I, wish, you I mean, wish somebody had of because, uh, you know, that was two perfectly good human beings were executed on that horrible morning on Nusa Kambangan. But, um. So I, so I didn't know them that well, but I'd been to jail and visited a few prisoners there. And, um, you know, I was totally involved in, the, in, the, in what happened when Jokowi uh, 
set a date for the execution of all the various appeals and uh, everything that went on. I was totally involved on that. But then on 2015, can't remember the date, woke up one morning and I uh, looked over, you know, out of my villa and looked over Bali and it seemed like a huge black cloud was hanging over it because you know, there's uh, those two guys and seven other people had been executed that morning. Yeah, and, um, that was, I knew then I couldn't live there. I just thought, no, we couldn't move. I can't live there. Anymore. So, we moved in a few months, actually. But I, I knew straight away that I, I wanted to write about that. But I, I wasn't sure in what form that would take. I mean, I didn't. I don't write nonfiction. Um, yeah, I, I always. I have tried to write nonfiction. I just make stuff up. So that's not a good look for somebody writing nonfiction. Yeah. <laughs> so I and I, I just was aware of the awful pain that those families of those men had been through. I mean, you know, there are a lot of um, arguments against the family. There's a lot. But having thought about it for many years, to me, almost the strongest one is it's just cruel. You know, the greatest mystery of, of human existence is we don't know where we're going to die. We know we're going to die. We don't know when. But to know the exact how and day you're going to, you're going to die or your loved one's going to die, that is just absolute cruelty. Um, so, I mean, I, and, you know, they were rehabilitated. They were, they'd done dumb things, but, you know, I did a dumb, dumb thing. So I was a young man as well. Um, but they were totally rehabilitated. They were really good human beings. And um, in Sukumaran's case, he was a really talented human being. I mean, he's, he's a world-class mm -hmm. painter. Yeah, I, yeah, I saw some of the work that he did uh, towards the end, and it was because um, who was it? It was was it Ben Quilty who was mentoring yeah, him through painting? Yeah, yeah. He, he taught him how to use thick paint, as they say. Yeah. Before that, he sort of doodled, you know, mm. in that sort of heavy metal, you know, that way, you know, just doodled on pads. Yeah. But Quilty taught him how to apply paint, and once he had the technique, there was nothing stopping him, yeah. and. Um, the Indonesian authorities, to their credit, gave him canvases and paint to the day he was okay. And those, that series of portraits he, he did while awaiting his, exec his execution are pretty extraordinary. Because I don't know how you could how you could put that into words, the feeling that yeah, that you you know that in three days and two hours you're going to die. But he put it into paint. And those paintings, uh, they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're extraordinary. They're, I mean, they're hard to look at. Yeah. But to me, they just capture it like nothing else. The disintegration of his psyche, they capture it. So, um, yeah, I knew I was going to write about that, but I just didn't know what form it was going to take. So I, it took me a while to, 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 find, to find these characters, uh, you know, an expat kid and then... His, and then it being his father was in jail. Mm. Yeah, because Fataj, uh, I think it was it was almost ten years that he was waiting. Um, I think for, for his basically his father mm. was uh, was in prison for that amount of time. And yeah, that, that's got to be kind of tough because he said he's fifteen at the start of the book, um, and so most of his life his father's been in prison and awaiting that, and that itself is a. Uh, would have to be some kind of torture because, of course, Taj didn't do anything wrong. He had, had no part of that. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, for a young man to be without your father for 10 years, but more than that, you know, his father 
was supposedly a criminal. You know, and Taj had got all sorts of stuff from Australia, you know, from yeah. had been all his social media had been bombed, he'd been uh trolled, that's the word, sorry. Yeah. No, no, I know, I get it, yeah. That his father was a criminal. I mean, there's, there's a shame of that as well, and drug smuggling. Um, you know, that's an awful crime. So Taj has had to live with a lot, despite having this extraordinary privileged lifestyle on one hand. On the other hand, he's had, had to deal with all this other stuff in his life. Yeah, and I think on that first page, he's, he's on the beach and he's just a kid that's trying to have a surf with his mates. And... Uh... Yeah, suddenly the media is there right in his face asking yeah. questions that he's trying to recall the training, what he's meant to say. And mm. it sounds like a uh, a challenging scenario, to put it mildly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, you know, you, you've, you've done a little bit there in, in the YA market in some very complex and, and confronting uh, topics. As you mentioned before, you've also done picture books, which are a completely different sort of tone and completely different uh sort of style. And then there's, um, sorry, I just had a blank, uh, the Debt series as well, which is, again, moving more into that thriller, almost um, not, not quite mythological, but a little bit based on the Herculean tasks uh, yeah, yeah, side sure. of things. How do, you, how do you sort of go about going from something that is, you know, say death penalty or, um, you know, culture clashes, you know, and, and relations in, you know, country South Australia, and then go on to something that's, you know, just so completely different and, uh, I, guess, yeah. I guess, is there like a mindset change there or how does that work? Um, no, I just think they're all ideas, you know, they're all out there. And uh, you, you come Fair upon enough. them and you go, okay, that's a, okay, example, example. Yeah. I was in a, um, I do quite a few school talks. So I was travelling around country Victoria and I ended up at a school, uh, walked into the classroom, had a look at all the kids, probably year three or four, can't quite remember. And um, looked over the kids, and you know, half of them were Anglo kids, yeah. so you and me, white skinned kids, and the others weren't. I mean, that's not unusual in rural Australia, especially when you get near the river. Yeah. <laughs> really interesting because no piece of fruit is picked by, by a white person, it's all yeah. picked by immigrants. Um, but these Kids who weren't Anglo were all from the same country, and they were all Filipino. And I okay. thought, wow, what's going on in this town? So obviously I did what I'm really good at doing. I asked a lot of questions, and uh, I worked out what had happened is that the town uh, just – the town's industry was pigs and stuff like that, and, and it was dying because they just couldn't get workers. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody wanted to move to the country. Um, and so what they did is uh, one, one farmer uh, got in some Filipino family on a, one of those four, five, whatever visas, yeah. and it was immediately successful. And so the other farmers tweaked onto this, and they, 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 got the, they got the Filipino family to ask their friends. Before you know it, um, like, you know, there's, it's not half, but like 30% of the town's Filipino. Uh, the Catholic school that had closed down started up again, and the standard in the in the local public school suddenly went from not very high to very high because immigrant kids work really hard. Yeah, uh, the biggest festival have they have in that town every year is a Filipino festival, mm -hmm. and I thought, wow, that's incredible. So you know, 
the town's been rejuvenated by an influx of uh, not strictly refugees, but there are other, uh, other towns. I did the research and there are other uh, towns in Australia where there is actually refugees. There's Karen in Neil in Victoria. Uh, been influx of Karen people uh, from Myanmar and there's other examples. And I thought, okay, that's a really good idea for a picture book. Yeah. <laughs> and so I wrote it as a picture book. It took a while. It took a while to get it, but uh, it came out last year. That's called Small Town. Yeah. Um, so it, that's the way it happens for me. You know, I'm just going about my daily life and I'll come across a story and, uh, you know, some stories seem suited for a, a particular type of uh, book or others seem suited for another particular type of book. I guess all, all these ideas that come through, uh, do you have any ideas that are coming through at the moment? So what's sort of what's next for you on the um, on the writing side of things? Oh, yeah, I'm just finishing a novel now it's uh it's uh speculative fiction so it's excellent yeah yeah you can probably see that's um the, on the on the background here there's oh, yeah. sorry, that side it's all the, the sci-fi and the fantasy and the terry pratchett yeah, yeah so it's uh it's inspired by the pandemic so it's dystopian yeah novel um it's sort of yeah it's for younger people as well mm-hmm. um maybe sort of around the Hunger Games, you know, uh, age bracket. You know, I hope. I hope it would sell, you know, a fraction of what that, that is sold. But, yeah, that, that's my first foray into speculative fiction. It was really interesting. I've got a science background. Okay. I've got a science degree. So was marine University. biology, was it? Yeah, marine biology. And uh, it, it, for the almost the first time in my life, it felt useful to have a science degree. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I could... Think about how a virus because I didn't want to fudge the science. I just yeah. didn't want to make it easy for myself. I, I felt like I, I I owed it to the reader to to, to have the hard science in, the, mm. in this book, not to fudge it. I mean, you know, it's usually more interesting too when you keep to the facts. Oh yeah. Sometimes it's harder to write, but it's ultimately more interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's called uh, well. It's, was called the triage, but I, it might be called something else now. And it's <laughs> just, I thought I'd finished it and I showed it to a, a friend of mine who's a very good critic and she said, mm, not quite, needs some more work. So, uh, 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 and she's right. You know, you just love that honest feedback. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You get angry when you get that. But I, I, I've done pretty much every book I've ever written. I've gone, yeah, that's right. It's ready to go. And I've shown it to somebody and they've gone, no, not quite. So, um, I'll get stuck back into it. And I've given it a couple of weeks off just to freshen my brain mm-hmm. and a couple of some really good ideas. You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting that when you disengage your brain from something, yeah. suddenly you get great ideas when you, you yeah. know, your brain's working on something else. And, you know, I've been working on something completely different this week. Uh, and suddenly I'll get these great ideas about something it's not actually thinking about. So, yeah, sort of frees up that brain space, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it really does. So um, I'll get stuck into that next week and uh, hopefully you know, next year, maybe in the end of next year, maybe it, it will be in the bookshops end of next year. Nice. And can I ask what it's about? Uh, or is that still... Okay, so I imagine a world where we've had not one, not two, but three uh, pandemic, the tridemic. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Is the other great thing about speculative fiction? Can you make your own words? 
Yeah. <laughs> Make up your own terms. Was it Tolkien made like one in six of words up for his uh or something oh, like really? that? Yeah, it was yeah, some yeah. ridiculously high number. Yeah, well, I can see why. It's sort of intoxicating. It's I mean, I'm a yeah. word nerd. I'm a word nerd. So um at the right podcast universe. Yeah, right yeah, it's, it's a fun thing to do. Um yeah. and so um there's only a small pocket of mankind uh, still existing, and they're, they're living under a dome, uh, so like a climate-controlled dome. And um, so here's basic science. Uh, it's going to get a limited carrying capacity. It can only um, hold a, uh, a certain population. So how do you control the population? Uh, so every year when the kids turn 15, they set a series of tests, um, psychological, physical, um, creative, and they're assigned a mark. And those who uh, have the lowest mark, and that depends on a, on a formula, um, depends on how many people are, are existing within the, in the, in the population at that time, uh, a certain number of them are cast. They're, they're sent out of the dome into a world where these viruses are still rife. Mm-hmm. And if after a year they manage to survive, they're welcome back. But... Um, so far, uh, the 20 years that this has been in existence, the triage has been in existence, uh, nobody has come back. And that's the setup. Yeah. Sounds incredibly pleasant. Um, no, so, <laughs> no, look, um, that's something that, you know, for me, dark fantasy, dark sci fi, and looking at all those sorts of, you know, th- those. Um, I don't even know if it's morally grey or it's just, you know, straight into those really nasty scenarios where it's, you know, survival or a few suffer for the greater of the many and that sort of thing. That's, I love those stories. Well, it's utilitarian, it's, it's utilitarianism, yeah. isn't it, for the yeah. greater good? So these yeah. people, these kids who are cast, they're, they're heroes. They're, mm. they're called heroes because they are, they are making a sacrifice for the greater good. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty fascinating stuff, uh, you know, um, how how these communities operate, um, yeah. and of course, you know, and it gives you so much scope as a as a writer, so oh, much scope, because yeah. there's and so much so much has been done before, and it's true. You know, I mean, you are drawing on Handmaid's Tale, you're drawing on uh, ancient Sparta as well, mm-hmm. you're drawing on all these different things, but hopefully, I'm creating creating something that's original. I hope. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm certainly uh, it's going on my list of things to. Um, Things Here we to go. Read now, because uh, wait for that I've one. Sci- I've got a sci-fi nerd interested. That's so, it. Um, that's a, oh, yeah, that's, the thing that's is, like, is with, with the way uh, books go, I'll be looking for all the triage. I'll be waiting for it, and then uh, the name would have changed by the time it comes out, and I'll miss it. Or something yeah, like well, that. I, have, I, I, I have, have another title it's called yeah. Tiger Swipe. But I don't know. Triage sounds more sinister. I might have to keep mm-hmm. with triage. It does seem to fit, especially with that whole. It's you know, working out who you can save, and then. The rest can you know, sort of sort themselves out um, type mentality. But um, it's, it's interesting because what it reminded me of was one of, of Sparta, but also of, I was trying to think, I think it was the Japanese during the um, sort of the interwar and moving into the Second World War period where particularly submariners, um, they, they were heralded as heroes because this could be your last journey out, so we're going to call you a hero until you don't come back was sort of the mentality there. Um now, I might be misremembering that because 
history was my first degree, but I did very, very poorly at it and barely passed. So uh, I'm going to apologise to any history nerds out there. I'm sorry. I'm still working on that. Um, So what what I didn't want to do as Lord of the Flies, because I really believe it. I I generally think human beings behave better than Lord of the Flies. Um, I think generally they cooperate. Faced with adversity, a group of humans will cooperate, I think. Yeah. I think yeah. so as well. And that's that was, yeah. you know, the, the basis of how, you know, communities and societies started, yeah. people who and needed think, each other. And Lord of the Flies is a particularly dark uh, take on human nature written by somebody who was, you know, pretty, I shouldn't pretty complex, dark person, actually. Yeah. Um, and I just don't buy it. I mean, I think everybody goes, yeah, yeah, that's what would happen. You know, we would all fight against each other. Well, really? There's a famous example of some um, kids from the Pacific, and they got lost. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they got lost on an island, Mm -hmm. just like the Lord of the Flies. Did they fight amongst each other? No way. They absolutely (laughs) cooperated. They planted vegetable gardens. They built things. They had a watch. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some kept watch. And then if, if there was an argument, then they would send those people who argued to the end of the island to just to calm down until they'd come to their senses. So it was yeah. absolutely the opposite of what had happened in, in Lord yeah. of the Flies. And I'm just trying to remember, I think one of them um, either broke a leg or broke an arm or they got quite injured. And um, the the others actually looked after them, which was pretty much the opposite of what Lord of the Flies said. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. And, and, and I think it, it healed almost perfectly. Didn't yeah. It? Yeah, the broken—I think it was a broken leg. You're right. Yeah. yeah. By the way, but you know, obviously, nice. as a writer, as a writer, you need conflict. You need friction. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, people cooperating doesn't make great drama. But um, yeah, hopefully, Once... I—you know—I sort of have managed to do both. Managed mm-hmm. to create a story that's you know full of drama and is interesting and and um, captivating. But still, I th- hope brought out what I what I believe. You know. There's some qualities that human beings always seem to um, exhibit. You know, I went a great example of what's happened now during lockdown. Most people have behaved really, really well. I think we've cooperated for the greater good. Yeah. <laughs> most people. Most people, everybody. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. most people, you know, a huge majority has. Mm. Just a very few vocal Yeah. Few. Um, yeah, so that's... Um, what else am I writing? I've got a picture book coming out about the the much maligned bin chicken. Actually, I'm going to call it the <laughs> white the white ibis. So I, I sort of nice. I hope uh, it gets. It's a book that's sort of about the bin chicken getting some of its dignity back. I oh, excellent! Yeah, excellent. yeah, that's coming out soon as well. It's well deserved. It's uh, yeah. Well, it's um, a it's a it's a very. Um, What's the word? It's a it's an it's an urban survivor. Yeah, you know that it's learned to adapt and it's survived. Um, you know, one day we might all be bin chickens. <laughs> we might all be sticking our beaks into bins, drinking bin juice. <laughs> yeah, the thing that I don't get though is that bin chickens or ibises have this you know horrible reputation and everything. Yet for me, at five a.m. every morning, whenever we put the bins out. It's always the cockatoos that are screeching and everything and ripping the bins open and everything. And not not a single bad word said about them at all. They, no. they get away absolutely scot free. Yeah. Um, 
But look, um, on a bit more of a serious note, one of the the questions that um, Danny asks on the the main words of Nerds podcast, um, I, I sort of steal it for this one because I always like the answers to it. Uh, but it's one she asks all of the authors that come on, and that is, why do you write? Mm. You know, I, I I always um, when I've written a book, I always say I'm going to give myself maybe two weeks drink beer, watch Netflix, ride my bicycle. Um, and I will, first first day I'll, you know, watch Netflix, ride my bicycle, drink some beer. But by the second day, yeah, by the third day, I'm going, mm, no, I'm as much as I like watching Netflix, riding my bicycle, drinking beer. Uh, I'll, I'll get an idea, you know, I'll just say, and you know, without even knowing it, I'll start scribbling on a pad or tapping away on my laptop and before I know it I'm writing another book so I sort of can't help myself but why do I write look not all of the books I've written have been socially engaged not all of them I mean you mentioned the debt before but I do think that writing is a powerful way to um, influence people or maybe bring something to people's attention so it's a way to change the world and I go back to growing up in South Australia. And remember, I, I read voraciously as a kid, which is weird because I came from working class, very large working class family where reading wasn't really um, promoted at all. But you know, for some reason, I just just found myself drawn to reading. And I, and I remember just reading for escapism, you know, just mm. because it took me to other worlds. And then at school, uh, we read To Kill a Mockingbird. And I read that book and I thought, wow, that's actually talking about the town I live in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I know that feeling. By racial prejudice, by awful racial prejudice. Mm. And I thought, I realised then that, that, that books and literature was just more than entertainment. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, wow, if, if, I, if I write, if one day I write, then I would like to do that sort of writing. Um, yeah. The sort of writing that makes people think about stuff. Um, and I don't know, hopefully, hopefully I've achieved that. Not sure, but hopefully I have. Well, I was certainly thinking about stuff reading the break. So I'd say that one yeah. definitely worked. Um, and it is one of those ones that, you know, just to, to take it back to the break and everything, you know, I'm just trying to think, of, again, the words, the right words are hard to come by on that one because, like I said, it's it makes you think because Taj does have a very conflicted, um viewpoint at the start and it does make you consider a number of different perspectives on a problem that or on an issue that um certainly when it was presented here in australia it was presented in a very um a very singular view it was not presented you know kindly at, at times and that really got you engaged and got you thinking about, well, this is not just about one person and what they did. This is about that longer spread effect and whether or not it's fair on everyone. So I think you've definitely achieved that with the break. Um, that's very much appreciated the, that story coming out. Um, on, on that, um, just uh, I should leave it there. I just want to say thank you very much again for, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to chat. Um, now, is there... Before we go, is, is there anywhere online that uh, we can find yourself or, or what websites, socials? 
Not really, no. I uh, actually had somebody hack my um, hack my Facebook account. I can't get it back again. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what, you're I not know. alone. All, local uh, you know Jackie's, what? It, same thing. It actually wasn't such a bad <laughs> thing. So, no, I don't have much of a word presence at the moment. But mm. I, if somebody wants to contact me, mm. uh, I'll just give you my email. So it's hildgwyn, one word, mm. P-H-I-L-L-I-P-G-W-I-N-E, at Ozemail, O-Z-E-M-A-I-L, so O-Z-E-M-A-I-L.com.au. Yeah. Excellent. And I, I'm glad that, like, because I did go through the research and I was trying to find the um, the right socials and the right contacts so we can direct, you know, listeners your way and everything. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't find anything. I was like, I really hope that I haven't just screwed up the most no, recent no, research. No, yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that your Facebook got hacked, but I'm kind of glad that it's, you know, um, not just me being useless at my job. Um, yeah. Cool. But, no, look, thank you very much. Um, we'll leave it there. And, um Okay. Yeah, again, thanks for coming on. Okay, thanks for having me. Nice. See ya. See ya. And also, thank you, listeners, for uh, tuning into this episode. You can find more episodes of The Regular at NathanJPhillipsWrites.com and also at WordsAndNerds.com. That's Words and Nerds, one word, with all spelt out, no ampersands in the middle there. And you can find a number of other spin-off podcasts there as well. Uh, most importantly, though... I hope you enjoyed this. If you did, let us know. Feel free to leave a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and uh, feel free to tune in next time. I'll be looking forward to it. Thanks.